Jo is now, uh, she's now a proper doctor and she's got her own research group and I'm delighted to see her here. She's based here in Oxford and she's going to tell us all about what on earth, well not what on earth, <laughs> what, what the universe is made out of. Um, so take it away Jo, I'll turn off these middle lights um, and, uh, and there we go. Great. Well, thanks so much for the invitation to come and speak, and it's great to see you all here. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk to you about um, probably one of the biggest unsolved questions in cosmology today. You could probably name two, and this is one of them. So it's, it's pretty important. Um, and it's basically trying to figure out what on earth the universe is made of, most of which is invisible to us. Um, I'm going to start with, with things that we do know about and we can feel comfortable with, and then we'll go on to things that are a bit weirder. So just as a reminder of where we sit in the universe and the, the bigger picture of, of how big things are and what we're kind of talking about in terms of scale, I'm going to start close to home. Um, so here we are on, on Earth, um, and we're living um, in a solar system. The Earth is orbiting around the sun, and that's our kind of lo most, most local part of the universe. Um, the kind of scales involved there, I'll talk about things like light minutes, light years, and that kind of thing. A light year is the distance light can travel in one year. A light minute, the distance it can travel in one minute. Light travels pretty fast, so all these distances are quite big. The distance from us to the sun is about eight light minutes. Um, and there we are, going round and round in a little solar system orbit. But you take a step out, and we get to our solar neighborhood, a collection of our local stars, the sun's at the middle, um, our nearest ones to us. Um, and that is about maybe 100 light years across. Light would take 100 light years to cross, um, even just between our nearest group of stars to us, the sun and its neighboring stars around us. Um, and our solar system would be very, very tiny there in the middle orbiting around the sun. Those are the stars that we can see in the night sky when we look out and it's not cloudy and we can see them in the sky. But if we take a step out again further, we get out to the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I haven't got a picture of the Milky Way because we're sitting in it, but imagine it a bit like this. Okay? <laughs> the Milky Way is a big spiral galaxy. Um, it's a big swirling mass of maybe like 100 billion stars or so. It's 109 zeros worth of stars. Um, some hot dust or some hot gas and, and just um, cold, dusty particles in it, um, all swirling round and round in a big spiral disk. Um, and the distance of that galaxy is, is huge. It's about light would take about 200,000 years to get across from one side to the other. Compare that to just eight minutes to get to the sun. Um, and we live about halfway out from the center of the Milky Way galaxy in a little spiral arm. So imagine the solar neighborhood sat maybe just around there in the equivalent Milky Way. Take a zoom out again, we go beyond galaxies. We go to giant clusters of galaxies. Um, and this is a quite beautiful image of one, I think, where each of these spots of light here is its own galaxy. Each of those, each galaxy, like a spot of light there, each of those contains maybe 200 billion, sorry, uh, uh, many, <laughs> 100 billion stars, um, each of them. Um, and these are kept into this big cluster of galaxies by gravity, the gravitational force between all those galaxies pulling them together into this big cluster. The separation between maybe two different galaxies in there is about a million light years. Light would take a million years to jump from one galaxy to the next. Um, zoom out even further and we can take a look at what just a random patch of the universe looks like on a re on really, really um, large scale. Here, every spot of light you can see is a galaxy. Every galaxy containing about 100 billion stars. 
And we think there are maybe about 100 billion galaxies in the universe that we can see right now. Um, anywhere we look in space, this space is just scattered with these, with these spots of light. And I think you can see, if you, um, there, for example, I hope you can just see that's actually a little spiral galaxy itself. Uh, there's another spiral over there. Some galaxies are spirals, some are kind of big blobs, less, less pretty looking. Um, but that's, that's, that's what we see when we look out with our eyes, with our telescopes, and with things that can actually detect light. But the thing is that that's only the visible universe. The things that we can look at with our telescopes and actually observe light coming from is just what we say is the visible universe. And what we realize now is that's only a very, very small fraction of what's actually out there. Um, and so the first, I'm going to talk about these two, these two things that are, that are out there. The first thing is if we actually look at an individual galaxy now, this is the Sombrero galaxy, a lovely um, spiral disk where the light you see is coming from stars in the disk of the galaxy. When you look at that, that's the visible light you see. Um, but actually, we don't think that's all there is. We see that galaxy and we see a spiral. But actually, we now believe that that galaxy is living in a much, much bigger sphere of invisible matter. So if you think of a little silly cartoon, this is not, this is not to scale. Um, imagine that that sombrero galaxy is that blue disk here. Um, and maybe that yellow bulge is the light that you can see coming out of it. Right, all this light here. But we really think that that's embedded in a much larger sphere, the green sphere, which actually could be much bigger than that, um, of invisible matter that completely dominates the mass of that galaxy. Um, and so what you should first of all say is, well, how do you know that? Um, <laughs> because if you can't see it, how do you know it's there? And so what I want to explain to you is how one can go and look at a galaxy like this and actually find out there's a whole lot of invisible matter there. You know, you're looking out into space. How on earth can you see things? And you do it by gravity. Okay, so gravity... Um, I'll go back in a minute. Gravity. <laughs> okay, if I have a ball in my hand, um, I know that if I drop it to the earth, like that, it's going to fall and it's going to hit while it's going to bounce. It's going to fall to the earth because of the earth's gravitational pull. The earth is massive and it pulls this ball to it. We can think of the same argument if we think about um, the Earth orbiting around the Sun. Um, the gravitational pull of the Sun, the Sun is so massive, keeps the Earth um, in orbit around the Sun, going round and round it. Um, it doesn't fall directly into the Sun because it's already got some sideways motion and that pulls it into a big circular orbit around the Sun. Now we can actually use that to calculate, to work out how massive the sun is. So, you know, we haven't got big weighing scales. We have to figure out how to do weighing in the universe. We can work out how massive the sun is by actually seeing how fast the Earth is moving around the sun and how far away it is from the sun. If we know these two things, the distance from the sun and how fast it's moving, we can work out how massive the sun is and we can weigh it. And we don't need to be able to see the sun. Okay, now imagine the sun was made of invisible matter. We could still be orbiting around it and we could still work out how massive it was. We don't need to look at it to work out how massive something is. We can apply the same argument to a galaxy to work out how massive a galaxy is. We can assume that the galaxy is a giant great disk of stars and it's swirling around and it's rotating around a bit like the Earth is rotating around the Sun. The galaxy itself is spinning around. 
and the, the speed at which it's going round is going to depend on how massive it is. And what you can do is make a prediction of, or you can measure, the rotation of a galaxy at different distances from the centre. So imagine a spiral galaxy here, this is a big spiral, and you can imagine stepping out from the centre and measuring how fast it's going round and round around that, it, it, within that galaxy. This is a little cartoon plot <laughs> or figure, but you can make a prediction. Okay? You can say, if this is the distance from the centre of the galaxy, this is my prediction, if there's no invisible stuff, of how fast stuff should be orbiting around within that galaxy. And this is the prediction. It goes up to this maximum point um, when you hit the edge of the stars, the, the big amount of stars. And then if you go further out, it should dive off. Okay? That's the prediction. And then you go out, and as an astronomer, you make measurements. And you go and take some galaxies, and you see how fast they go, they're spinning around. Um, and what was found out in the 70s, actually a little bit before that too, was that actually the galaxies are spinning way too fast. So this is now the speed at which they're spinning around and the distance from the middle of the galaxy. And the prediction that I showed you is this prediction here. Okay, it increases, and then it's supposed to decrease if there's just a disk of stars. But the observations were completely different. This is the data up here, much, much bigger, and just keeps going three times further out than you can see stars. You know, the stars stop after, you know, forget the units, but a number 10 units out from the middle. But three times further out, this galaxy is still spinning, spinning, spinning very, very fast. And the only real explanation for this, gravitationally, is that the stuff out there that's causing it to spin around, the galaxy is way more massive than we can see, um, and that that extra mass must be made of this giant spherical halo of dark matter, invisible matter, surrounding it. And that's there around every single galaxy. So all the galaxies you can see scattered throughout the space in those pretty plots, they're all surrounded by this huge, great halo um, of invisible matter, and it's what we call dark matter. And actually, it's more than that. It's what, not almost, worse, but better. Okay, we actually think that the universe, not only do you have big halos of dark matter around every galaxy, but they're kind of connected up too. There are like filaments of this invisible matter connecting up galaxies, one to the next to the next. This is an image of what we predict on our computers of what's actually going on. It's very, you know, because we can't see it, we have to make predictions instead and try and match it up. We think that actually the universe, if you could see all the invisible dark matter, would look like this, where these are, where, where you can see brightness, that the brighter regions are where there's more dark matter, more clumpiness. And the actual galaxies you see would be sat, for example, there'd be lots of galaxies on that bright spot there. There'd be some there, some there, some there. But in between them, there'd be these filaments of dark matter interconnecting them. Some of them would have galaxies on them, but a lot of them would just be invisible to, the, to your telescopes or to your eyes. And so we think that the visible matter that we can see is only about a fifth of the total matter that's out there. The rest of it, we think, is dark matter. And so when you hear those terms, there are these two terms, there's these terms dark matter and dark energy. You should think primarily of simply dark matter being matter that you cannot see, that's probably particles, and I'll say a bit more about what it could be. But it does feel gravity. Again, imagine the sun being made of dark matter. We would still be orbiting it, but it would be really, really cold. Um, not much fun place to live. Um, okay, yeah, oh, sorry.
Okay, so then we can say, well, okay, is this everything in the universe? I haven't, I haven't figured out what dark matter is yet, but at least one of my jobs as a cosmologist is to do an inventory of the universe. What's it made of? What's in it? Um, by about the 1990s, theorists had predicted, on average, how dense the whole universe is. Um, and that sounds like a bit of a strange concept, but we like, as cosmologists, to think of the universe like average properties. On average, how much does a cubic meter weigh? Um, you know, it's actually very irregular. Here on Earth, we're much, much more dense uh, and heavy than the empty bits of space. The universe is not actually smooth. But we like to make up quantities such as if we took the universe on average, how much would it weigh? What's it on average made of? Because one very important thing in cosmology is what's called the cosmological principle, which says the universe should look the same anywhere you see it from. It doesn't matter if I'm standing here or in a galaxy billions of light years away, I should see the same thing. So it's reasonable to talk about average properties. Okay, but so there was this prediction of how much on average the universe should weigh, how much stuff should be in it. But if you add up all the visible matter and you add on all the dark matter that you've worked out is there around galaxies, um, there was only about a quarter of the total um, was, was there. So the dark matter was about 20, 23-25%. Atoms that we're all made of, about 5%. And there was this big chunk of unaccounted stuff. Um, and there were big but there were big arguments about whether to believe these theorists. Um, they may have just been wrong, right? Um, and so about 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there was this grand program of work to try weighing the whole universe rather than just weigh a galaxy or weigh the, weigh the sun, try and weigh the whole universe and try and figure out um, what's in it. Okay, now, to, to weigh the whole universe, I have to take a slight uh, sidetrack because we have to have a vague understanding of what happened in the early universe and what's happening to the whole universe now in terms of its um, evolution. So we think that the universe hasn't always been like it is now. I showed you that today it's scattered full of galaxies and that behind those galaxies is this web of, of dark matter. But that isn't how it was many, many years ago. We think that it started off as a very, very hot, dense place, um, not full of galaxies at all, full of just particles, light, um, and um, basically a primordial soup. And about 14 billion years ago, driven by some energetic process, um, which I will take, say is the other second biggest question in cosmology, what was that energetic process? <laughs> We're not going over that today. Um, <laughs> was, the, was the Big Bang. Something started an expansion of the universe, expansion of space. And you should think of space then as, as been, having been expanding ever since. Imagine a box of space, okay? Imagine a box of space filled with some particles. Each of those blobs is a, a particle. And each of those squiggles is, for example, a ray of light. Now imagine the universe a bit later in time. Space is expanding, and that box now grows to be a much bigger box. Um, and the particles spread out, they're diluted, and light rays in that space stretch apart. Much, much later, we'll get galaxies forming. But what you should think about is, is space um, itself expanding. We think we believe that because of a key piece of evidence um, that actually has been around for a while. Back in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble, pictured here, 
um, found out this amazing fact that if you look out into space and you look at all those galaxies I showed you, that they're not just static in space, get spotted around us. Um, they actually appear to be moving. And what's more, they all appear to be moving away from us. And what's even more, the ones that are further away from us appear to be moving faster than the ones that are closer by. Um, that might sound strange until you realize that that's a consequence. Any expanding universe where you're stretching space apart and anywhere in the space you're having space stretched apart, you'd expect to see galaxies moving away from you. Because if everything's getting more and more diluted, everything's just getting further away from everything else. And so as everything gets further away from everything else, it looks like it's moving away from you because everything's more distant. Um, so you can imagine this little cartoon where these are galaxies and time is going up here. So a bit later, the galaxies are spread apart. A bit later, they've spread apart even more. Um, and so this observation was then sort of solidified in what's called Hubble's law, where what I'm showing you here is a selection of galaxies, very distant galaxies, where what you do is you measure how far away a galaxy is from us, and you measure how far it appears to be moving away from us. So what you do is you find its distance from us, how far it appears to be moving fast, it appears to be moving away from us, and you put a spot on this, on this plot. And you find that they all lie along this line, basically. And what that's saying is that, first of all, the universe is expanding because they all lie along that line. But what's more is that we can use uh, the slope of that line to work out what the rate of expansion is. How fast is the universe expanding? And that's always, that's, you know, it's a number that's of interest. Um, you may have heard um, Hubble's constant being talked about. How fast, how fast is the expansion of the universe today? Um, and so what Hubble was able to do and what's been confirmed in later years is to measure things, measure the expansion rate of the universe nearby and to find out it is expanding. Okay? That's not enough for us. <laughs> what we want to do to weigh the universe is to find out how the expansion of rate of the universe today compares to how it was in the past. Now, so, again, I use this ball. Um, if I'm standing here on the Earth and I throw this ball in the air, throw it in the air, it comes back down. <laughs> it's not very surprising. It comes back down because the gravitational force from the Earth pulls it back down. So you can imagine this is a, not a great image of the Big Bang. Imagine me throwing the ball up in the air as being like the Big Bang, setting the tennis ball going off in the air. And then somehow it's being pulled back down to Earth. I should forget the Big Bang for the moment, just think about the tennis ball. <laughs> um, now imagine that the, that the Earth was instead made of polystyrene or something really, really light and kind of pathetic. And imagine you could throw the ball quite hard. I think you can imagine that you could throw the ball hard enough and the Earth could be light enough such that it could leave, it could go through the atmosphere. My tennis ball could be thrown hard enough that it could leave orbit altogether, could go out off into space. Because whether it comes back or not depends on how heavy the Earth is. The Earth is the one thing that's pulling it back in towards me. And so this is the, this is the same idea that people apply to trying to weigh the whole universe where instead of trying to figure out how heavy the Earth is, whether it's made of rock or polystyrene, we try to figure out how heavy the whole universe is. 
And so in the same way that I want to figure out whether the ball goes up, starts coming back down again, or keeps off out into space, I can measure the expansion of the universe. So I can work out, I can say this is the size of the universe and this is billions of years from now. And I can say if the universe is really, really, really heavy on average, then the Big Bang is going to have pushed it outwards, but the stuff in the universe will be heavy enough to pull it all back in again. And so one can imagine that the expansion of the universe will gradually slow down, turn back around, and the universe will start shrinking again into, into what's called a big crunch, which I'm sure people have heard of. And that would be this curve here, okay, which the universe would shrink back down again to nothing. If the universe is pretty light, not very heavy, kind of polystyrene type universe, um, <laughs> then the Big Bang would just keep it going, sending it off outwards. And the, the weight, the mass inside the universe would not be quite enough to stop the expansion. It'd be a bit like throwing the ball out beyond the atmosphere and beyond. Um, but it would slow down. The expansion would just keep slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And you could imagine that the size of the universe would just keep growing and growing gradually forever, but not get any bigger. And so this, this was the big challenge 10, 15 years ago, was to say, well, so my job, therefore, must be to see how much is the expansion rate slowing down? If I want to know how much the universe weighs, I, all I have to do is see how much its expansion is slowing down, and then I can work that out. What you do for that is to, there are many ways of doing it. The, 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 way that was, that would, the main way that was used for it is um, <coughs> to use um, very, very distant galaxies. Now, we have this great luck in cosmology that the further away you look out into space, the further back in time you're looking. Because light rays travel to us, um, but light takes time to travel to us. So if it's reaching us, you know, the light from the sun set off eight minutes ago. So when we see the sun, we're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. The nearest star took four years for this light to travel to you. So when you look in the sky, you're seeing it how it was four years ago. We get this great opportunity in cosmology and astronomy to look at enormously distant galaxies that could be seven or more billion light years away, um, which means that the light from them has been traveling for seven billion years before serendipitously hitting our telescopes. And it means that we're seeing them as they were seven billion years ago. So the whole of cosmology is based upon the fact that we can look in the past and see how things were happening and compare them to today. So back in 1998, um, these two teams of astronomers who were kind of really in big competition um, and weren't talking to each other and it was all quite secretive and, um, and, and exciting, um, were observing galaxies that were about 7 billion light years away. Um, and they were, what they were doing is that they were measuring supernovae. Supernovae are giant exploding stars. For just a few days, a star will explode and it will completely outshine the galaxy it lives in. And I, I said to you, a galaxy might have 100 billion stars in it. Supernovae is so bright that just for a few days, it'll be brighter than 100 billion stars put together, one exploding star. And so you can perhaps imagine that if something is that bright that it outshines an entire galaxy, that I might be able to see it pretty far away. And so you need some, if you're going to look far away, you need something really, really bright. Um, and not only are they bright, but they have this great property that we call them standard candles. And standard candles are a bit like a 100-watt light bulb. Okay. If I've got a 100-watt light bulb 
and it says 100 watts on it. I know how bright it is. And if I distribute them, if I put them throughout space, and I measure how bright I see them to be, I can work out how far away it is. Because a light bulb that's very close to me is going to look really bright, if it had electricity running through it. <laughs> um, but a light bulb that's much far, further away is going to look dimmer. And so something that's really central to doing cosmology is having objects in the universe that you know intrinsically how bright they are. Because then if you know how bright they are, you can work out how far away they are. Um, and that's, these are objects that we call standard candles. Um, because we think, we think we can use them to, be, to know how intrinsically bright they are. There are some problems with that, but they're, they're mostly pretty good. <laughs> um, these, two, these two teams of, of scientists observed these supernovae, um, and they found something really weird. They found them to be dimmer than they expected. Um, and if you think through the consequences of that, what you find out is that the expansion rate of the universe in the past, when these supernovae were emitting their light, was actually slower than it is today. And I didn't give you that as one of the options for the tennis ball, right? The tennis ball either had to turn back down and drop back to the ground, or it had to kind of coast out through the atmosphere. What these scientists found was equivalent to me throwing the tennis ball in the air, and it's speeding up out of my hand and flying off up into space. Really weird. So what they were saying is that the universe, seemed, the expansion rate of the universe seemed to not be slowing down um, or slowing down, decelerating in any way, but in fact to be speeding up. And this was totally weird because nothing in the universe should do that or nothing that we knew about in the universe should do that. And so the answer to what could make the universe accelerate, when we say that we mean the expansion of it speed up and speed up and speed up, is dark energy. Um, now, those are just words. You don't expect to know what that means. We don't know what that means. We've come up with nice words to describe things we don't understand, and usually we call them dark something. <laughs> um, and, and this is stuff that exists even in empty space. Um, I'm going to talk a bit more about what it could be, but what it's proper, to make a universe speed up, you need stuff that's kind of distributed smoothly throughout space. Not in that cosmic web that I talked about with the dark matter, but just everywhere. Um, it needs to have a constant density as time passes. That's also a weird thing, because think about a box full of a few galaxies. As space expands, say you have three galaxies. As space expands, you've still got three galaxies, but space is bigger. And so they're, they're diluted. There are fewer galaxies per cubic meter of space, for example. This stuff needs to be the same and not be diluted as space expands. Space expands, you get more of it. Space expands even more, you get more and more and more of it. Um, and that's pretty, pretty odd stuff. It also needs to not interact with normal matter and just to be interacting basically with gravity. Um, I want to mention, I'm taking a slight sidetrack here. This was really, this was, this was a pretty surprising, very surprising in around 1998-99. And a lot of people didn't believe in dark energy. And even for the kind of five years after that, people, you would ask a lot of cosmologists and they'd be like, oh, not really sure about dark energy. It's so weird and your data isn't necessarily completely trustworthy. You know, do I trust that a supernova really behaves like a 100 watt light bulb billions of light years away? Maybe it doesn't. 
Um, but what's happened since in the last 10 years has been these incredible checks from all this vast array of, of different data. And one of the main things is something that I work on. Um, I'm slightly biased, but I think it has been quite important um, <laughs> evidence for it, which is the cosmic microwave background. Um, I'm not going to spend long on it, but it's, it's relic light. It's light that's set off at the Big Bang. It's light from the Big Bang itself. It's not from galaxies or stars or anything since then. It actually was around at the Big Bang. And it's just been traveling through space since then. And we measure it today with microwave telescopes. And in particular, we measure, measured it for the last nine years with a satellite called WMAP um, that's been sitting a million miles from Earth measuring the sky. And what it does is it basically takes a snapshot of the universe as it was just after the Big Bang, kind of a baby picture of the universe. And this is it here, and you may have seen it in, um, in the popular science press. What that is is it's a picture of tiny little temperatures the temperature of light over the whole sky unwrapped onto, like an, the oval here is really a map of the whole sky, but unwrapped onto a flat piece of screen. Um, and these are kind of the tiny little baby ripples in the universe that will much, much later form cosmic structures. I think all we need to think about here is that we can use it, how we see that light today depends on the universe it's traveled through since it started off its journey 14 billion years ago. And so think of it broadly as if you have more of this dark energy or any of this dark energy, the little blobs of color you see on this map would actually show up bigger. And if you had less, of dark, less dark energy or none at all, they would show up smaller. And it's really just a projection effect of how light that set off 14 billion years ago shows up today on Earth. There's a lot more to this image, but I, we're not going to do that, talk about that so much today. If we take this map of the sky and do our, you know, figure out what could have gone into it, then something that I was very much involved in, we find again that we need dark energy and we need dark matter to be to have a consistent picture, ignoring supernovae at all. We don't need supernovae to tell us that, and it comes out to be around 70% of the universe being dark energy and 23% dark matter. Not just the CMB. There have now been at least I would say 10 other ways of probing the universe. Um, one of which has simply been many, many, many more supernovae. At least 200 high-redshift supernovae or very distant supernovae have been found in the last 10 years, um, ma mapping the expansion rate further and further away from us and longer and longer ago, equivalently. There have also been this beautiful mapping of the positions of hundreds of thousands of galaxies in the sky. When I showed you that first sort of picture of scatters of galaxies, they look pretty random but they're not completely random. And if you map out exactly where all the galaxies are in the universe, they actually live in a giant sort of cosmic web that's shown up here where the bright points, this is just a kind of a, a little wedge of the universe, all the bright points are where galaxies are in the sky. If you take any, these observations and many more, you can't make, any, you can't make them compatible unless you put in dark energy and around 70% of the universe being made of it. And it's, we're in this nice situation now that you can kind of take one or two different probes together and say, oh, yeah, I need dark energy. Or you can take another one and say, oh, I need dark energy. You're no longer reliant on only one piece of observation. And as scientists, that's something that we really care about. You don't want to completely trust or rely on only one line of evidence for something this important. So we have this you know, inventory of the universe. About 70% of it's dark energy, 25% dark matter, 5% stuff that you and me are made of. 
trouble is, you know, we can say very confidently, I know what the universe is made of, it's this, you know, and we say very confidently, the, you know, but the percentages are pretty accurate. We always like to say how uncertain we are about these numbers. We're uncertain to about 2%. Um, you know, if I had to tell you how much dark energy is there, very, very precisely, it's about 73 plus or minus 2. You know, it's, and then we say, and then someone says, well, what is it? We're like, oh, I don't know. Um, so on the one hand, we're confident, on the other hand, we're a bit confused. So now I want to talk about how we're going to work it out. First of all, dark matter. To get to grips with dark matter, um, what we're doing is bringing together astrophysics and particle physics. We think that dark matter is likely some sort of new particle that we haven't found yet. So obviously the particle physicists are going to know about it or can have ideas about it. But the astrophysicists are the ones finding it and sort of measuring how much of it there is. So the astrophysicist's job is to work out how much of it there is. We also have to work out how much of it could be what's called neutrinos. Neutrinos are very small particles that are a bit like dark matter, could, could be a bit of the dark matter. Many, many of them are passing through you right now. Um, I should also note that probably a lot of dark normal dark matter that's not neutrinos is also passing through you right now. Um, it just doesn't care about your, doesn't talk to the atoms in your body and just flies straight through you. Um, and their job is to look for signatures of these particles from the place in the universe where there's loads of dark matter, which is from the centre of our, particularly from the centre of our galaxy. We think there's already a lot of dark matter there. That's our job. And the particle physicist's job um, is to try and figure out what sort of particle this stuff could be. What could be a particle that does not interact with light? Um, and I say that because if something is invisible, it means that a, f a ray of light will just pass straight through it. The reason I can see um, you know, this wall here is that light is bouncing off it and into my eye. But dark matter we think of as being stuff that light will just travel straight through um, and doesn't emit its own light either. So the particle physicists need to um, also f predict its properties um, and also try and make them in accelerators. Um, you can uh, create particles um, if you fire... Um, I'm going to sit in the next slide. If you, if you have particle accelerators where you can generate very, very high energies, you can turn energies into masses and make new particles. Um, and that's, that's a great hope um, for dark matter. But just to say, what, what could dark matter be? A bit of it could actually be ordinary matter. Um, it could be light, you know, mass that comprises very, very small, faint stars that are not very bright. And so look like they're actually dark. Some of it could be black holes, so collapsed stars that also have collapsed so much that light can't get out. Um, or these things called machos, which could be things like, Jupiter, like big planets, or anything that doesn't, hasn't you know, ignited um, and set fire to itself to produce light that we can see. But we pretty much know that, that it couldn't all be that. Um, a whole lot of it needs to be something more exotic and something new. Part of it, a small fraction of it, could be these things called neutrinos that we already know about, and they're in our model of particle physics already. They're, they're okay. <laughs> um, the most popular model, I would say, people have various arguments for what's the most popular, um, certainly greatly discussed, are things called WIMPs, um, they're, which stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particle. Um, these are particles that could be typically you know, hundreds of times heavier 
than protons. Protons are the things that are, are the atoms that we know about are made of. So, for example, a hydrogen atom has one proton in it. But these dark, these these are uh, these wimps could be very much very much heavier than protons. Um, and one of the most popular models, I think, for for these particles is called SUSY. Um, stands for um, supersymmetry, or the supersymmetric extension to the standard model. Um, and the idea is that every particle that you know about, every particle that you're made of, has a superpartner. Imaginatively or not, uh, we're made of things called quarks, that I think you have heard of. Um, quarks, every atom in your body, um, if you break it down, is made up of little tiny quarks, tiny particles. Their superpartner is called a squark. Uh, um, we're also made of things called leptons, and their superpartner is called a slepton. Um, so there's a, um, there's a whole, so there's an entire zoo of particles that could exist. That every single um, every single quark has a superpartner, etc. Um, and actually, this is you know it's it, it's theoretically very elegant and very popular. Um, and one of the one thing that's very appealing about it is that the predi it's predicted that the lightest one of those, the lightest Susie new particle, could be the dark matter particle. All of the dark matter in the universe could be made of one particle that's simply the lightest new Susie particle. Um, it might not be. <laughs> it might be something completely different, but it could, you know, it could be. And so there's, you know, people are optimistic. Some people are not. It's, it's, it's um, depends who you ask. Um, that these these could be seen, or signatures of them could be seen in LHC. So LHC is this massive, great accelerator that's been much in the news recently um, in um, in at CERN in Geneva, um, where you're firing particles together at such huge energies that you can turn energy into mass using E equals mc squared from Einstein, and actually hope to actually produce. Susie, new Susie particles, these very, very massive particles. And right now, you know, this summer, this is not something I work on, but plenty of people in Oxford in the particle physics um, group are very involved in analysis of data from the Atlas detector at LHC. And they're all very excited and they're running off to CERN all the time. Um, and, you know, everyone is looking forward to seeing what comes out. So it, it's, you know, we don't know that the dark matter is a wimp. We don't know that Susie even exists. But if it does, then there's a chance that in the next few years it could be seen or a signature could be seen at CERN. Um, so there's, there's reason to be optimistic. But there are also other ways of looking for dark matter. Um, you can try and look for it directly. We think that if this is true, that dark matter is actually a particle that's only very, very, very weakly interacts, it means that you can have a hope of seeing it. When I say that it's invisible, it means that most of it's invisible. But if you have billions and billions and billions of these particles, every so often you might be able just to see one of them. Um, and so there are plenty of people who are working deep, deep down in mines, deep underground, building detectors, trying to look for one little interaction from a dark matter particle out of many, many billions. Um, and um, you know, ideally, you'd want to. You'd like to be able to create it in an accelerator and see it in a mine. And then also you want to be able to try and see it from the galaxy itself via some, you know, via a signature it might produce. There are all these, you know, you want to kind of build up a picture of a consistent picture um, of what it could be. Um, could be something else. Uh, but it's got, but it, you know, there are some specific properties that it must have. Um, and, um, and, and if it's not seen, by, for example, LHC, that's also interesting. 
because ruling out models is also interesting because you have ideas of what's likely and if you don't see it, that's, that's also telling you something new about physics. Okay, so that's um, a bit about dark matter. Dark energy. Dark energy, I, I think, is, is weirder. Because um, um, dark matter could just be a particle that, that we can't see very well. It could be more weird, but it could, it could be not totally weird. Dark energy could be really quite weird. Um, the best guess um, is something that we call a cosmological constant. Um, and it's energy associated with a vacuum. The idea of that is take an empty box of space and put nothing in it. Don't put any particles, any galaxies, any stars, anything. Just empty. You normally think of that as having no energy associated with it. It's nothing. Zero energy. But actually, um, it's possible that empty space has its own energy. And the idea of that is that actually empty space is not empty at all. That quantum physics tells us that you can constantly be creating particles and vanishing them again um, if you do it very quickly. You're allowed to suddenly create and annihilate a pair of particles in space as long as they vanish away again. So what you think of as an empty cubic meter of space or empty box of space could constantly be having little, you know, bits of energy created and, and vanishing again. Um, and those little fluctuations could produce, you know, energy of empty space. There's one major, major, major problem, which is that if you say that and you go through the argument and you just write down how big you think this could be, you find out that the amount of energy this stuff, you know, the, the energy space fluctuations should be is enormously bigger than we observe. And by enormous, I really mean enormous, because it's 10 to the power of 120 times too big. And that means 10 and 120 zeros after it. That's a really big number. Um, and it's just crazily wrong. Um, and so this is, this is really centrally important at the moment, because it's our best guess of what could be going on. But our theoretical prediction is so far off what we actually measure. What we measure, I said 70%. Now, it, might, it might sound a lot to you that most of the universe is made of dark energy, but actually 70% is rather little compared to this theoretical idea, which would say the universe should be entirely dominated by this stuff. Atoms should be, you know, only a minuscule fraction of it. So um, actually the dark energy is a relatively small amount of the universe if it's only taking up 70% of it. So it's still, though physically, this is, this is still the most likely, even though theoretically figuring out why it's the size it is is a huge issue. Um, the other, it could be a, a new kind of stuff or um, not quite a particle, but a kind of energy that permeates space that we say is dynamical because it does actually change with time. Um, people often refer to ideas of this as quintessence, a fifth essence in the universe. Now, we're not quite sure what that is either, um, but we can compare it to a constant because one changes with time and one doesn't. And that sounds trivial, but saying through these different properties of these things, even if we don't understand it, you can say, well, these are things that are measurable, and I can at least figure out what's, what's what. What's quite um, possible, um, although it would be rather disconcerting, is that we might have got gravity wrong. So all the inferences we've been making about what's in the universe, nearly all of them come from assuming gravity is right. Because I've talked about weighing things, weighing galaxies, weighing the universe, um, seeing how things um, move. And you're assuming you are, that Einstein got it right, um, that he's told us how gravity works, which is roughly how Newton told us gravity works with some modifications. Um, 
And it could be that it's actually wrong, that there's no dark energy at all, and that what we think of it is this extra component is actually having made measurements a bit wrong, having got gravity a bit wrong. That sounds almost the easiest solution, but it's actually very hard because to mess with gravity, you've got to do a lot of... Um, you've still got to make, for example, the solar system work. You've got to get gravity to work everywhere it does already work, but then only not work where you've got you know, evidence for this weird new stuff. And that's actually rather difficult, but people are working on it quite a lot. Could be something else entirely. Um, <laughs> so, um, so to, to figure out what it is, what, what we're doing now, the, the big, our big job now is, is that, you know, observe, a lot of us work as both theorists and observers. When we're not sure about something, you go and take more measurements, and you, you're more me your further measurements help you. And so what we need to do is we need to probe the expansion rate and how structures form in the universe over its entire 14 billion year history. I told you about measuring you know, out to 7 billion years back with these supernovae. The cosmic microwave background tells us about what was happening at the Big Bang. There's this huge missing amount that's kind of before 7 billion years, the first 7 billion years of the universe that we haven't mapped out. We don't quite know what's going on there. And if we can very, very carefully measure how the universe is expanding and evolving over its whole history, we can figure out, for example, if this dark energy is something that changes with time, whether it really is a, a constant, um, or whether something else pops up strange to tell us about it. So we can do, we can do this by measuring the just general expansion rate of the whole universe, or you know, on average. But we can also look at how dark matter, for example, clumps together over cosmic time, because the amount of behavior of dark energy affects how big clumps of matter, um, for example, big clusters of galaxies, um, how that changes. I want to just mention two ways in which people are moving to try and figure it out. The first is simply collect more supernova data. I mentioned what this was. This was um, exploding stars that work like standard candles of known brightnesses. And all we need to do, it's just a little, little bit of an ask, is to measure thousands of them up to 10 billion years um, back in time. Just go a few billion years further. Um, we've just recently this year got a whole bunch of new supernova from my colleague working on um, a big supernova survey um, where his new data, their new data, is still consistent with it being this cosmological constant, just a vacuum energy, not changing with time. Um, and, and you know, various pieces of evidence are all still consistent with that, with that picture. So measuring more of these will be one way to go. The other cool way to go, I think, um, is a thing called gravitational lensing. What this is, we've been talking a lot about gravity. Um, the gravity of a galaxy, so if you have a big galaxy, then I think you're happy with the fact that if I throw a tennis, tennis ball into it, it will, its path will get bent or get, get distorted. By, um, uh, by the galaxy. But light does too. We think of light as traveling in straight lines. But if light is traveling in a straight line and there's a huge amount of mass just there, the mass will actually bend the light um, because the gravity, the gravity of the mass will sort of almost pull the light towards it and distort its path. And so you can imagine us down here, an observer looking at a galaxy there, and you can imagine a bright star or a bright exploding galaxy or something behind it. And you can imagine a ray of light, two rays of light going out, but then you've got a galaxy here 
and those rays of light get sort of pulled in by the gravity of that galaxy and come towards my eye. Um, and the more massive that galaxy is, the more it's going to bend the ray of light coming from the thing behind it, the more it's going to distort the light. Um, and so what I can do is go out and measure how much galaxies get distorted due to this lensing effect. Um, and that will allow me to measure what's, how, mu how massive the things are in between it. Now, this, this galaxy doesn't have to be bright for me to see it. It could be dark. It could be made of dark matter. Anything that's got mass bends light. So if, all I can do is I can go out and I can measure the bending of light throughout the universe. And I can measure light being bent by background, very distant galaxies. And if I measure that bending, I can work out how much mass is in between me and the stuff that, that, um, that's being bent. And I can work out how much matter there is um, as the universe evolves. Different sorts of dark energy are going to give different amounts of, of clumping of matter over the history of the universe. Um, and so I can use that to figure out what's going on. This is an extreme example. I must stop soon. Um, extreme example of, um, imagine there's a big clump of matter in here, okay? And the bright lights you can see are very, very distant. They're behind the big clump. So imagine the lights are on the screen, and actually imagine there's a huge clump of matter right here. Where you see these like, long lines, elongated lines, they're actually lensed galaxies, bent galaxies, from way behind the big mass, big clump of matter, whose light has got bent around the giant great mass. And you see them as these elongated um, strips of light. Um, and doing this on many, many galaxies will allow us to measure how structures form. We had an exciting new result just a few months ago that I worked on in Princeton, um, where we found the first, we found new evidence for dark energy existing by measuring this distortion of light um, by, from the actual original relic CMB light by big, big clumps of, of matter. Um, and we're pretty excited about where it's going to take us in, in future measurements. So just to kind of flash up what's coming next, um, there's two big there's many new missions, but there's two big ones people have in their minds of what's, what's going to really help us understand dark energy. One is this um, telescope in Chile um, that's going to take huge amounts of data. It's going to scan the whole sky every three days, collecting about 30 terabytes of data a night. Um, and it should be due online by the end of the decade. And it will measure the lensing of light, and it will measure supernovae. And it will try and let us see how dark energy is behaving. Um, and then Euclid is a proposed ESA mission that everyone's on tenterhooks to hear about whether it's going to be funded or not, because they're going to hear, we're going to hear in October if it's going to go ahead. And it will go out into space, and it will measure, again, the lensing of light by structures and supernovae and various other things to figure out what the dark energy is. And again, that's coming in this next decade. OK, so just to conclude, I told you one of the biggest questions in cosmology is, what on earth is this missing 95%? There's now a really large body of evidence that it exists, um, but I want you to have in your heads that dark matter and dark energy appear at least to have quite different properties. They are different, different components of the universe. Uh, some people are hopeful that we may see dark matter or, or, or its signatures at, at LHC, and by measuring cosmic structures throughout the universe, we're really hoping to figure out dark energy. Um, but I think we're also going to need some, some great new minds telling us how to think about the universe. Um, and how to perhaps change our ideas of, of our conceptions about what's in it and what it behaves like.
Satan, the great unknown. <laughs> and we often have people come here and tell us all the things that they found out and all the things that we now know. About. <laughs> and, and actually, in some ways, it's, uh, it's refreshing to have somebody stand up and say, we haven't got a clue. <laughs> we haven't got a clue. So, we are all experts together tonight. <laughs> Anybody, anybody with a with a brilliant new idea, new, some good theoretical ideas? Terry's going to give us the answer. That's <laughs> no, a question, I'm afraid. Mm. No, this is no good. Uh, about, it, it's about this vacuum. Mm. I mean, 30 years ago, I went to a talk by a, a theoretical physicist mm. about the vacuum. Mm. And at the end of it, an hour or something like that, I mean, it's, oh my God, you know, <laughs> all that in what I thought of at the beginning as nothing. Yeah. And, however, he was an eminent chap, and it sounded as if it was all pretty sorted out. And yet, and I can't see where you got your figure of 10 to the 120 from. Oh. What was, was, was the physics of 1980 or whatever it was, was that actually inadequate? Or is the picture of the vacuum not quite connected with what you've been telling us well, tonight. I, so I, it could, the other option is it's zero. You know, I think if you want any of it at all, um, then you've got to go through the arguments that would result in the 10 to 120. So I'm not, sh I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure which argument says that it's a small number. I don't know of any argument that says you can this come up with it. Yeah, no, well, I think, but, but, certain, but actually, even though I said, even I said this hadn't been figured out, there were actually quite a lot of cosmologists around, even in 1980, who actually had proposed this existed, and, and, and both. I mean, so even though I said, oh, we didn't know it existed then, that's a slight lie because people had proposed that it could exist. I mean, this, this is what Einstein called his cosmological constant, even when he came up with it, you know, a century ago, but then discarded it because he thought it was nonsense. Um, so I, I don't think that people have come up with a way to make a small amount that's neither zero or enormous. Um, I'd have to check which, you know, which particle physicist and what theory he had, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that now no one's got an idea of how to make it the Lewis right size. Smith. Sorry? It was Llewellyn Smith. Okay. You, can, you, can, you could do it with something that's not just the vacuum, so putting in an extra field or something that could give the right amount. But I don't think it's, I mean, we, you know, particle physics and astrophysics talk, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not completely separate. So, um, I think getting, getting a small amount is really tough. Getting, for example, none is easier than getting something that's so equally matched to how much matter there is. And I don't think probably that was come up with at that point. I think I'd have to, I'd have to go check. Other questions or the brilliant ideas? That's a very good question. I think, I mean, in science, we tend to prefer to not have, you, you'd rather not have something that you wanted, you know. Yeah. Um, I think if, um, there are certainly consequences. Okay, so, I mean, in terms of what will happen to the universe in the end, that will depend on what the dark energy behaves like. Some people talk about the big rip, 
which is where the universe just expands faster and faster and faster and faster, and so everything is completely uh, expanded so far away from everything else that no one can see ever, anyone else in the whole universe, and the whole universe appears to be sort of almost empty. Um, and so certainly it's what we find out about what it is will tell us about the fate of the universe. Um, and so, you know, some people would say, oh, I don't want a, fate. I don't want a sort of cold, dark end fate to the universe where everything has been ripped apart. That would be one, one thing. Um, modified gravity would be quite interesting. Mean, I think no one is, as physicists, we have to assume that we haven't got everything quite right yet. You know, Newton got it pretty good. Einstein did a bit better. I don't think anyone thinks it's crazy to think that we haven't, you know, that we've got as far as we're going to get. So having a modification to gravity, um, it, some people would think that's quite ugly because Einstein's theory is so beautiful. So some people wouldn't like that on the grounds of it sort of breaks elegance, unless, you, unless what comes out is, is even more beautiful. Um, this one is, in a way, this is going to be depressing, although probably most likely, in the sense that we're going to make more and more measurements of this stuff, and we need to. But if it is a cosmological constant, all we're going to do is keep measuring the same amount of it all the way back through the universe. And the more measurements we take, we're still going to see the same amount of it um, with nothing, no strange behavior at all. And you're still going to be miles out. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, um, although we might, some smart theories might have come along by then. So I think that's, I almost think that's the most likely, but perhaps at the superficial level, least exciting in terms of an observational result, I think. Oh, that's no, that's quite right. And actually, what I haven't really mentioned is this idea that this is another enormous question that kind of is a cosmology question, but also is general physics is unifying gravity and quantum physics. Yeah, I mean, this is this is enormous too. Um, I think a bigger unsolved question, and they could be connected. Um, we think we need some bigger theory to unify them. It might be string theory. It might be something else. And that unification might give us a clue to what this stuff is. Yeah, I, th I think everyone's, and, and string theorists, you know, we're constantly trying to come up with predictions of string theory models or unified models for the universe. So this, it could be connected. That's not that, that, that's more part of the standard model. We kind of expect that. If we don't see that, that would be more strange. Um, yeah. But this, this stuff isn't, sorry, the dark matter isn't the Higgs boson. No. Okay. That's right. Um, the Higgs boson we're expecting, the dark matter is a new sector of particles that um, could be there. Yeah. Does it, um, because obviously when you're looking back the space, you look back the speed of light on the um, speed of light and the um, changing constant throughout time. Do we, do, is there any question as to whether the speed of light has been changing as a constant over time? So your so almost when I say gravity is wrong, um, that kind of comes into that, although that's, that's something that's kind of been explored and mostly discarded as an as a option, but that's sort of where it would come in as, as changing gravity, um, because that's so central to Einstein's gravity.
Oh, well, this is my yeah, and it's an excellent question. Lots of problems. So, um, roughly, um, the reason they, they are standard is that we think these exploding stars are all basically the same mass. They're one and a half times the mass of our sun. Um, and physically, you can work through an argument that says that as soon as you add more mass to a star than that, it can't, it can't be stable and it's got to explode. So the nice, the nice thing about it is we think these stars are all of the same mass and they explode. And things that are all about the same behave physically about the same. Um, but that's, <laughs> and, and, and we have evidence that is true because you look at much closer ones um, and you check, you see what they're, how much bright, you know, how they, how they explode and how bright they are over you know, a, function, a number of days. Um, it's called a light curve, which says if you measure the supernova exploding and then you measure it for a number of days afterwards, it all behaves the same. And that does give us pretty good confidence. But the fact is we don't know for sure exactly that type 1a supernova are exactly this. And we don't know for sure that they're all the same. Now, a lot of studies have been done. The last 10 years, people are doing a huge number of studies to try and, you know, you try and split them up into different uh, populations. You know, you take one, so you, once you've got hundreds of them, you can check out different subsets of them and check they're all behaving the same. Um, and you can check that, for example, they maybe aren't changing as the universe changes. But I, I think if we only had supernovae to rely on, I think the, the, the community would be a lot more skeptical about the results and that, that I'm not a supernova physicist. Um, but, people actually, but what people are doing now with supernova data and the latest results do account for it as including what we call systematic errors, which says, I'm not quite sure how sound and candle-ish this is. I'm going to, you know, make my answer a bit more uncertain to account for that. But the fact that we do think they're all exploding from the same mass certainly helps us quite a lot. But that's a very good question. It's kind of a big issue as well in, in cosmology at the moment. Yeah. So there's two different hunts for gravitational waves. So there's gravitational waves. So this is the idea that space-time itself has ripples in it. So a piece of space that's that long has a wave pass through it, and suddenly it stretches and shrinks again, and that's space itself changing. And so. Um, there's two, two searches underway. One is looking for gravitational waves coming out of, for example, in spiraling uh, neutron stars or black holes. Um, I'm also involved in search for gravitational waves from the Big Bang itself, so ripples in space-time that were sent out from the Big Bang expansion. Um, I think if we, if we see them from the Big Bang, it tells us quite a lot more about what, for example, set off... Um, the Big Bang, which might tell us a bit more about the fundamental physics behind it and could shed light on, for example, dark energy. I don't think that's going to shed much light on dark matter. But what's maybe more long-term is that gravitational waves from objects in the universe is going to become another astronomical tool for studying where these massive things are out in the universe. So it could help us probe where matter is and how it's behaving. Um, so would that mean that we could be wrong about how far away these things are? 
these supernovae. We think they're 10 million light years yeah. away, so we think it should be, you know, it should be yay bright. Yes, yes. Actually, it might be 20 million light years away, but it's just got the things have got squashed a bit. No, no, I think that's, no, no, I think that's not, that's not possible. <laughs> no, not in that way. So the, the, the waves would be sort of, um, like, for example, a black hole over there would send out a quick burst of waves, but it'd be really quick, um, and then it would travel through at the speed of light and be gone. Um, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't change how space itself is distorted that much. So I think it could shed light on the contents um, and distribution of things in the universe and help, but I think it's more disconnected at the moment from trying to solve this question. Okay, so you have the last, the last one. Oh, right. Um, I understand, I mean, what is gravity? <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand, I mean, we've been talking about it, but what yeah. is gravity? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite a weak force. Yes, it's sort of yeah. Electronic uh, forces. Mm. And I believe that if the sun switched off, we'd feel the effects of gravity before yes. the light ran out. So gravity must work quicker than the speed of light. Where does this fit in with your gravitational lenses? Actually, it doesn't. So that's the nice thing. So that, that's how... Um, so Einstein... I have two answers to this. One, I don't think we completely know what is the source of gravity. And we set, one of the issues of unifying relativity with quantum physics comes about because gravity is a bit different to the other three forces. So we know of the electromagnetic force, the weak force, the strong force. And we've kind of put them all together and unified them. And gravity stands out as this one that we, don't, we can't unify. And I think a lot of people are hopeful that whatever unifies quantum physics with relativity will do that. So I can't give you that answer right now. But what I can say is that Einstein's relativity does account for how quickly gravity can work. Um, and you can't actually feel things faster than the speed of light. So if you, if you suddenly add a whole mass to space somewhere, then something very, very distant from that point still, needs, still can't learn about it quicker than the speed of light can travel between them. Um, so the speed of light is still there as a constant in terms of how, um, how gravity behaves. So what we think, so Einstein sort of tells us that big amounts of mass actually bend space, and then light travels in that bent space. Um, so light is busily traveling, but it doesn't, it, it, um, it doesn't do it in a way that, that moves you know, quicker than the speed, allows anything to be transmitted faster than the speed of light. But I do. But I also will be, you know, upfront and say that that unifying gravity with everything else is uh, another. We need another talk on this. <laughs> another unsolved. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's. What, what we'll do is we'll, we'll bring this partly into a close. If, you, if you've not been here before, then um, that's kind of there's a formal form of Q and A, which Joe has kind of navigated um, through your tricky question. Um, but what we are going to do now, because we're all experts on this, um, you might have the answer. We might have a glass of wine or a glass of orange juice downstairs. If you'd like to join us and hang around, Joe, are you able to join yeah, us? Yeah, sure. So Joe will be downstairs. You can um, probe her with some more questions um, after we've packed up her stuff. Um, but I will just ask you to give her another round of applause. For